Hi there, listeners. I'm Robin Anir, and this is my podcast, Nothing on TV, in which I've ransacked Trove Newspapers, the National Library of Australia's fabulous digital repository of historical newsprint, to bring you stories from a time when there was literally nothing on TV. See, this is how it happens. I was reading a newspaper report on the further exploits of G. Fabrizio Sala for episode two when my attention was snagged by an item, an entirely different story, in the next column over. It took restraint, but I made just a brief note and pushed on in pursuit of the Marble Man. Now here's what caught my eye. It's from page five of the Melbourne Argus on Thursday, June 26, 1902. The headline reads, Distributing Lord Hopeton's Wine a disgraceful scene. And the report begins like this. The festivities provided for the unemployed of the metropolis were continued at Argyle Place Carlton yesterday. The chief item on the day's program was the distribution of the 300 bottles of champagne. Champagne for the unemployed? What was this? A socialist utopia? No, it was back lane, inner city Carlton, and things pretty soon went pear-shaped. But let's wind it back. Who was this Lord Hopeton, and why was he doling out champagne? Lord Hopeton, his full name was John Adrian Louis Hope, and he was the 7th Earl of Hopeton. He'd first come to the colonies in 1889, aged just 29, as Governor, the Queen's representative in Victoria. Before he'd even arrived, the papers were full of stories about the Earl's importations, four carriages, 60 liveries, that is, servants' dress uniforms bearing his family crest and colours, hundreds of cigars, and 300 dozen, call it 3,500, bottles of champagne. Even though he paid duty on his imports, there was a disapproving tone to the reports. One of them, it's true, offered the excuse that the young Lord Hopeton was only emulating the example of Lord Carrington, the New South Wales governor who, when installed a few years earlier, had brought with him to Sydney enough champagne to last throughout his vice-royalty. Lord and Lady Hopeton, she was just 22 and painfully shy, kicked off with a reception at Government House where they impressed the locals by shaking hands with every one of the 4,000 guests present. The Bolshe Barrier Miner, that's a newspaper out of Broken Hill, dismissed those guests as toadies and reporting on His Excellency's visit to Bendigo soon after, said that the great mining centre slobbered over vice-regality, as usual. An article, signed an ex-governor, had appeared in a British journal, criticising the new crop of youthful governors. The writer had said, It would appear that the Australian governments, once considered the great prize of the colonial service, have ceased to be honourable resting places for veteran governors, who have spent their lives hard at work in the tropics and have instead become refuges for untried and puerile noblemen. Lord Hopeton, in Bendigo, took on the ex-governor, asking why the Australian colonies should be regarded as benevolent asylums for old and worn-out governors. He said, We puerile noblemen do not profess to have great talents or a long record of past service, but we offer you freely the best we have such physical and mental powers as Providence has blessed us with, and above all, we desire to devote the best years of our lives to your service. To which the barrier miner, that Broken Hill paper, remarked, coming from such a pitiable specimen of humanity as Hopeton, elsewhere the reporter had called him puny, the offer of the best we have was rather funny. But of course, the speech was cheered lustily throughout. Oh, grovel, thy name is colonial. 
Well, that was the view from Broken Hill, but the Melbourne correspondent for a New York newspaper, one of the grovellers, no doubt, wrote that the men like him because he is a bold rider, the women because he is a magnificent dancer. Our governor can perform the Highland Fling in a manner which would gain him first prize at any Caledonian gathering. Lord Hopeton had arrived in Victoria just as the 1880s, that glorious boom decade, was winding up, and no sooner had he been installed as governor than the colony plunged into depression, that Great Depression of the 1890s. True, the depression was felt across the colonies and across the globe, but because Victoria's gimcrack wings had carried it so very close to the sun, it fell further and harder than most. It had been said, or let's say boasted, during the boom years, that Victoria imported more champagne per head of population than any country in the world. Remember, that's how the Australian colonies still thought of themselves, as separate countries. But within just a few years, Victoria would sink very low in the champagne stakes. Lord Hopeton did his bit to keep the market from flatlining. On top of the imported bubbly in his government house cellar, he vigorously promoted the local article. Visiting the Royal Agricultural Show in 1891, he remarked that he had always wondered how it was that the colony could not produce any drinkable champagne. But that very day, he had tasted a local drop, he said, that he could really enjoy. It was made at the Great Western Vineyard, and though it was still too new for drinking, Lord Hopeton ordered 500 dozen bottles for his cellars in Scotland in anticipation of their maturity and his eventual homecoming. It was unemployment more than champagne consumption that characterised Victoria in the 1890s. The labour movement and unions gained strength in the 90s, fighting for the rights not just of workers but of the many without work. One of the leading agitators on behalf of the unemployed was a socialist anarchist bootmaker named J.W. Fleming, better known as Chummy. When not heading demonstrations, he was a familiar figure at the Yarra Bank, Melbourne's Speaker's Corner, where he spruked every Sunday. The annual eight-hour day procession, these days defanged as Moomba, was the Labor Movement's gala event. In 1890, Lord Hopeton was positioned at a window of the old Treasury building to witness the start of his first eight-hour day procession when Chummy Fleming unfurled a calico banner bearing these words, Feed on our flesh and blood, you capitalist hyena. Police claimed that the banner was directed at the governor and threatened to lay charges against the troublemaker Fleming. In colonial times, a governor wasn't merely a figurehead but had an active role in government and could exert an influence on policy, which is why, in 1892, a rally of about a 1,000 unemployed, chaired by Chummy Fleming, voted to send a wordy telegram to Lord Hopeton. Respectfully, to inform you, great distress prevails and energetic measures needed in alleviation. The unemployed rely on your powerful aid to achieve this beneficent result. Now, as the story would later be told, Chummy Fleming was invited to Government House to advise the Governor on how best to relieve the plight of the unemployed. By one account, Fleming even supplied Lord Hopeton with a reading list so that he might learn from thinkers and thus get a new angle upon his duties. To the extent that something along those lines actually took place, it would happen nine years later, in 1901. Lord Hopeton had, after completing his term as Victorian Governor in 1895, returned home to his Scottish cellar, stocked with Great Western Champagne. Six years later, though, he was back as the first Governor-General of the Federated Australian Colonies. The 1890s were over, but widespread unemployment was not. Victoria showed no signs yet of regaining its champagne reputation. In the lead-up to Federation, Melbourne and Sydney had tussled over which of them should be the nation's capital, 
before reaching a compromise that would lead to the eventual creation of Canberra. In the meantime, Melbourne would be the temporary capital and so would host the opening of the first federal parliament by the Duke of York, next in line to the throne, in May 1901. Chummy Fleming, in the intervening years, had been unflagging in his advocacy for the unemployed. A month before the 1901 royal visit, he staged a rally at the gates of Government House. As part of the capital city compromise, Lord Hopeton kept vice-regal residences in both Sydney and Melbourne. According to a report next day in the Mount Alexander Mail, Fleming told the rally, If we cannot get satisfaction from the government, we shall be compelled to make a demonstration on the arrival of the Duke of York and walk in the procession wearing cards in our hats bearing the words workless or unemployed. We will show the Duke that there is more misery here than in the land from which he comes. Fleming then led a delegation which put the case of the unemployed to the Governor-General. Instances of individual hardship were presented, and His Excellency expressed his sympathy, but explained that the days of personal government were over and he had no power to deal with matters of this sort. Under Federation, the vice-regal role in government was almost entirely ceremonial. Of course, he said he could help individually deserving cases, but Fleming replied he wasn't seeking charity. Then, what can I do for you? asked Lord Hopeton. This comes from an account in the Sydney Daily Telegraph. Can you suggest anything? Was this the point at which Chummy Fleming won the Governor-General's confidence, becoming his man on the ground? A month later, at the procession through Melbourne to mark the arrival of the Duke and Duchess of York, Fleming and his band of demonstrators positioned themselves at the foot of Princess Bridge, not far from the spot where the Lord Mayor was due to welcome the royal visitors. Beneath the banner that read, Unemployed, Dispossessed, Chummy Fleming stood on a table and presented an oration at Speaker's Corner volume to coincide with the Lord Mayor's welcome speech. His words were heard quite distinctly over and above the voice of the Mayor, according to a Solidaritas report in the Barrier Minor. The Governor, he said, was endeavouring by a false and expensive show to make the Royal Visitors believe that everybody was prosperous and contented. At this, a police detective ordered Fleming to knock it off, but Chummy, who insisted he was merely addressing a few friends, decried the outrage on the right of free speech and led his audience in an adaptation of the Marseillaise. His singing, said the Bendigo advertiser, though bad enough to stop a tram, did nothing more than frighten a restive horse, and the royal cavalcade passed on. In the course of his Princess Bridge oration, Fleming had reportedly complained that the Governor-General had done nothing to help the unemployed. Whatever had or hadn't come of their meeting at Government House the previous month, over the coming year, the newspapers would report a second meeting between the two, at Lord Hopeton's request, followed by a couple of £10 donations sent to Fleming by His Excellency to help those most in need. Then, in May 1902, just a year after the opening of Federal Parliament, Lord Hopeton announced his resignation as Governor-General. He too was protesting an injustice. While his salary was the same as that of his Canadian counterpart, in Lord Hopeton's case, no additional allowance was paid to cover travel, residence and entertaining, costs which were believed to consume nearly his entire salary. What did the Governor-General's job entail after all, besides travelling, entertaining and keeping up appearances? And remember, he had two residences to staff and upkeep, one in Melbourne, another in Sydney, plus the expense of hosting the royal visit. The Prime Minister, Edmund Barton, eventually introduced a bill into Parliament that would provide for the Governor-General's expenses, but Barton proved a poor advocate and the bill was defeated, at which point His Excellency cabled London 
asking to be recalled from his post. Three weeks before he was due to sail for home, Lord Hopeton sent for Chummy Fleming. In a fortnight's time throughout the British Empire, a public holiday would mark the coronation of King Edward VII, Queen Victoria having died the previous year. Lord Hopeton, as a parting gesture, wanted to see that the unemployed and their families had a really good meal on Coronation Day. In Melbourne, he entrusted Chummy Fleming with £100 to see to it. Equivalent in buying power to about $15,000 today, that would be enough, thought Lord Hopeton, for about 300 families. He stressed to Fleming that he specially desired the thing to be carried out without ostentation and publicity so that the poor people who would enjoy the fruits of his generosity on Coronation Day would not have occasion to feel ashamed of their position. Fleming saw to it, though, that the press was immediately apprised of this thoughtful donation, which harmonises entirely with his lordship's continual sympathy for the workless. What's more, according to a report in the next day's Age newspaper, Mr Fleming modestly suggested that the amount was so large the responsibility of dispersing it should not be left to a single individual but His Excellency replied that he had implicit confidence in Mr Fleming and he might call at Government House next week to make further arrangements. When Fleming paid that call, Lord Hopeton was tidying things up in preparation for his departure. When he'd arrived a year earlier, he'd been anticipating a five-year incumbency and that an entertainment allowance would be forthcoming and so had made sure that the sellers of both his residences were well stocked with champagne. Now, rather than ship it all home again, he promised 300 bottles of this health-giving elixir to patients in Sydney hospitals on Coronation Day, with a further 300 to be forwarded to Mr J.W. Fleming for distribution among the unemployed and distressed people of Melbourne to wash down that really good meal he'd promised them. Which brings us back to the headline that began this episode, Distributing Lord Hopeton's Wine, A Disgraceful Scene. The responsibility for distributing Lord Hopeton's gifts, the £100 and now the champagne, was not taken lightly by Chummy Fleming. Not that His Excellency's implicit confidence in him was misplaced, but Fleming, a bootmaker and freelance activist, was hardly set up for such a large-scale operation. In Sydney, where Lord Hopeton had also vowed £100, he'd entrusted the government with its distribution. But as mouthpiece and guardian of the unemployed, that's what the age called him, Chummy Fleming kept a register listing the names and circumstances of those most in need, and that register was to form the basis for the Melbourne distribution of Lord Hopeton's gifts. Fleming decided that the business would be spread over two days, Tuesday the 24th and Wednesday 25th of June 1902, ahead of the Coronation Day holiday on Thursday. The money would be given out first on the Tuesday, followed by the champagne on Wednesday, since it was thought unwise to hand them out together. Distribution HQ would be Fleming's bootmaker's shop, tucked away in a Carlton back lane called Argyle Place. The tiny shop front, it was called dingy in one newspaper, humble in another, was also his home. A bed and an oil stove were hidden by a curtain, and it had rarely held, wasn't built to hold, more than three or four people at a time. Lord Hopeton's cheque, plus two more donations of £5 each, had been cashed at the bank and converted into £110 worth of silver. That's thousands of coins laid out in trays on the shop's counter. At the appointed time on the Tuesday morning, there were hundreds, perhaps more, jammed into Argyle Place. Mainly, they were men, but there were families too. Only men's names appeared on Fleming's register. 
Women apparently didn't count among the unemployed, except as wives and daughters. True, there were charities that looked after the needs of widows and other unsupported women, but usually at a high moral cost. Anyway, you could hardly move in Argyle Place. Chummy Fleming had a few comrades to assist him, and Captain Corbett, the Governor-General's aide-de-camp, was there to see that all was in order. Could such a spectacle be witnessed elsewhere, wrote the man on the spot for the age, as the representative of the throne and the representative of socialism working hand-in-hand for the relief of the distressed. At the shop door, an operative with a copy of Fleming's unemployed register would call out a surname, which Chummy, standing on a chair in the laneway, would repeat, to be echoed by a man posted at the rear of the crowd. Were the names called in alphabetical order? It doesn't seem like it. Chummy Fleming was an anarchist, remember. The age reporter observed the plight of one young fellow who bore the name of Smith, and whenever he heard that name, darted forward, only to be told he was not the right Smith. In fact, according to the Argus, as usual, the Smith family caused a lot of trouble. Here's a quote. Smith! Mr Fleming shouted. Instantly there was a commotion through the crowd and an army of struggling smiths threatened to overcome the armourer-in-chief on the chair as the shop would hold only two applicants at a time. Senior Constable Satchwell interposed and stopped the invading army at the door. Opportunity was then given to the applicants to sort themselves out by calling the Fitzroy Smiths, the Collingwood Smiths and so on. Oh yes, I forgot to mention there were police in attendance. Each man... When his name was called, except in the case of Smith, would enter the shop and be marked off the register. And depending on whether he was listed as single or married, he'd be given either two shillings or five from the hoard of silver coins. Eked out at that rate, Lord Hopeton's £100, plus the extra ten, stretched to many more families than it was originally supposed would benefit. Something like 650 single men and 400 families. The reporter for the age had clearly thought Lord Hopeton a fool to waste his money on chummy Fleming's spurious charity cases. But having witnessed so many sober-looking, decent men coming forward to receive a pittance, he concluded, reluctantly though the admission may be made, Lord Hopeton is entitled to feel that his generosity has been a godsend in many a home, and that as far as could be judged from the appearance of the applicants, his money has reached cases of real deserving... At the end of the day, there was still money remaining and names on the list, so the doling out of shillings would continue in the morning, ahead of the champagne. On that subject, Captain Corbett, the Governor-General's aide-de-camp, before leaving Argyle Place, had inquired anxiously about the 300 bottles due for distribution on the morrow. He had understood it to be His Excellency's intention that they should be given to the sick. But no, Chummy Fleming was adamant. His Excellency's instructions were that the champagne should be so distributed that decent people might have a drop of something to drink on Coronation Day, and we are seeing those instructions are carried out. Come Wednesday morning, a crowd reformed in Argyle Place, and the bootmaker's shop reopened. But charity is contagious, and while Chummy and his friends were giving out the rest of the money, a local brewer set up six barrels of beer on trestles in an adjoining laneway. Six barrels of free beer, that is, in a gesture intended to match Lord Hopeton's. An estimated 300 men and women lined up for beer, kept in order by two policemen. When they arrived at the head of the line, each person was allowed to draw and drink a pint of beer, after which many raced along the maze of lanes to rejoin the end of the queue. 
said the Argus, things rapidly went from bad to worse. Soon the trip round was regarded as superfluous. Men fought with each other for possession of the pannikins, and eventually the right-of-way was blocked with a crowd of intoxicated men who were clearly determined to drink themselves into stupidity. The police worked strenuously to preserve some semblance of order and eventually telephoned the brewery people to come and take away the remainder of the last cask of beer. In two hours, 300 men and women had got through 200 gallons of beer. And that was the state of things when Chummy Fleming and his friends finally began to dole out Lord Hopeton's champagne. Word of the free booze had spread, and from all quarters there was a gathering of the drunkendom and loaferdom of Melbourne. Here's the Argus again. They came from the wharves, the ships and the byways of the city to battle for booze, as one of them put it, preferring beer but prepared to put up with champagne in the event of their favourite beverage being unprocurable. The air was full of fighting talk, and the crowd blocked the footpath in front of Fleming's shop, demanding our fix and threatening all sorts of desperate deeds if it were not immediately forthcoming. Finally, the door was closed, and the announcement made that no more champagne would be distributed until the footpath was cleared. The crowd sullenly retreated to the end of Argyle Place, where they were restrained by half a dozen police. Chummy and his helpers kept calling out names, only louder. To be eligible for a bottle of Lord Hopeton's gold top, one had to be a married man and listed on the unemployed register. But of the nearly 400 whose names were called out that day, only 112 were present to claim their bottle. With the list exhausted, Chummy announced that no more champagne would be given out, at which came a roar and a rush on his shop. The six policemen struggled to keep mob and champagne apart, and a news photographer, yes, newspapers carried photos now as well as headlines, a news photographer was shoved through the window of the shop, camera, tripod and all. It was now 5.30pm, three days after the winter solstice, and it was close to dark in Argyle Place. The mob was beaten back, the window boarded up, and a policeman posted to guard the remaining 188 bottles, plus the extras Lord Hopeton had sent along in case of breakages. And the 112 bottles that had been claimed, what became of them? The newspapers joked that the recipients of Lord Hopeton's largesse didn't even know what to do with it. Some wanted to know, said the Ballarat Star, whether it was to be drunk neat or whether water was to be added like you would scotch, while the age scoffed that the greater part of it had better have been poured into the gutter. Many were said to have sold their bottle to one of the eager buyers who gathered at the corner of Argyle Place. Publicans offered five shillings and a long beer, but brothel keepers gave the best price. It was said for the prestige of serving the Governor-General's champagne at their establishments. Well was practically vice-regal patronage. However many shillings they paid, they were getting a bargain, though, because these were big bottles holding more than a litre of the choicest French champagne. The newspapers, now that they had headlines, sure knew how to use them. Here's a sample. Beer and champagne, a Melbourne orgy. That was the barrier minor. Champagne and beer, a glorious debauch. The Evening Telegraph from Chartist Towers. Distribution of champagne, some unpleasant scenes, the restrained Sydney Morning Herald. A bounty abused, that was the succinct Adelaide advertiser. And my favourite, battle for booze. Vice royalty puts the enemy into the mouths of derelicts to steal away their brains. That was the Mercury and Weekly Courier, a paper circulating in Fitzroy and Collingwood. 
The Age reporter, when holed up in Chummy Fleming's shop during the melee, had asked why the champagne hadn't been sold and the proceeds distributed with the rest of the money, to which Fleming replied, We are tired of the inequalities among the people. The rich drink champagne and the poor, small beer. And when the Herald broached the same question with him next day, he elaborated, Why shouldn't the poor get champagne? Champagne is not reserved for the stomachs of the rich. I look upon this action of His Excellency as an original innovation and one that recognises the equality of the producer with those who happen to be in better circumstances. As for Chummy's own stomach, he told the Herald, no drop of intoxicating drink has passed my lips since I was ten years of age. The remaining bottles of Lord Hopeton's champagne were distributed in Argyle Place next day to those who could produce a ticket proving that they were a patient at one of the public hospitals. The papers reported that the champagne's street price had increased to seven shillings and sixpence a bottle, and there were rumours, too, that Lord Hopeton's generous gift, far from being best cuvee, was just cheap bubbly imported at a few shillings a bottle for making fruit punch at government house balls. But whatever, Chummy Fleming maintained that it was as fair for the poor as for the rich to enjoy themselves when coronating the king. And after all that, Coronation Day was cancelled. On the same day as the orgy in Argyle Place, the new king underwent emergency surgery for appendicitis and his coronation would be postponed for six weeks and downgraded to a tropical storm. All over the empire, festivities planned for June 26th were abandoned and the now pointless holiday was clouded by an air of depression. But in London, where thousands of game birds had already been slaughtered for the coronation banquet, the inmates of East End poor houses would dine for once like royalty. Lord Hopeton sailed for home just a week or so later. As his coach made its way from Government House through Melbourne streets, heading for the docks, the Governor-General was cheered and hailed as good old Hopey by crowds that lined the route. Well, it was a day out and, of course, there was nothing on TV. Along the way, the papers noted, His Excellency ordered his driver to halt having caught sight of Mr J. W. Fleming, the Secretary of the Unemployed, and calling him over, shook hands with him and wished him goodbye. Among well-placed observers in Britain, possibly including himself, it was said that there was little doubt that Lord Hopeton had been less than successful in the great test of his career, his stint as Governor-General. But for what it was worth, a largely attended meeting of Melbourne's unemployed would endorse unanimously and amidst cheering, a motion put by Chummy Fleming to the following effect, that no matter how many divergent views we hold, as royalists, republicans, socialists or anarchists, we unemployed can all unite in agreeing that the late Governor-General of Australia, Lord Hopeton, is a man. And as we have known him as such, we give him three hearty cheers. Nothing on TV is made in my Verlin Heights studios in Castlemaine, Victoria, Australia. It's produced by Mrs Bradley, my long-time and staunch, I think that's the word, literary agent and muse. You can find more episodes of Nothing on TV on iTunes and now on Stitcher and TuneIn as well. Why not subscribe and have fresh episodes appear like magic in your podcast feed? Visit my website, robinanear.com slash nothingontv or just Google Nothing on TV for pictures and further reading related to this and other episodes. Listeners may have noticed that Nothing on TV doesn't have a social media presence, but feel free to send me an email 
via the link at my website. The staunch Mrs Bradley fields them on my behalf. I do love a good gatekeeper. Also at the website, you'll find links to Trove newspapers and to a stack of other resources that'll help you find what you're looking for on Trove and generally to delve into its marvels for yourself. Just in case, you know, there's nothing on TV. I'm Robin Anir. Talk with you next time.